So Father, we ask now that you would show us the glory of your son, Jesus, through your word. God, will you enable us by the Holy Spirit to step this morning into the light of your holiness. As you reveal our sin to us, where you show us where we've fallen short, God, will you also show us once again the perfect righteousness of your son, Jesus Christ. And will you encourage us once again in the good news of what he's done. So will you help us today to turn from sin where you call us to repent. Father, help us to be faithful where you call us to obey. Help us to overcome doubt where you call us to believe. And Lord, will you speak to us this morning a word that will edify your church and glorify your name. Father, sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. Will you show us the glory of your son Jesus through it today? We ask all these things in his name. And everyone said, amen. 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 You can go ahead and have a seat. And as you find your seats this morning, I'm gonna invite you to turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 17. Feels very weird to invite you to turn anywhere other than Matthew 5 through 7 uh, after seven months there. But John 17, we're gonna camp out here for just a few weeks together. Uh, looking at the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And since we're jumping right into John 17, I'm gonna give us a good bit of buildup and context this morning that's really gonna set the foundation for where we go, uh, not just today, but really over the next few weeks. Um, I'm a middle child. Uh, any other middle children in the room? I'm just curious. You are my people. Glad to see you here this morning. I've got an older brother and a younger sister. And growing up, all of us were pretty stereotypical according to birth order. My, my brother is a pretty stereotypical firstborn. My sister is the only girl. She is a pretty stereotypical baby sister and youngest in the family. And I was a very stereotypical middle child. And then, you know, my mom and my dad, each of them only had one sibling. My dad was the oldest. So he really kind of understood my brother. My mom was the youngest and she was the only girl, so she really understood my sister. And then there was me, the kid that nobody understood. And, and that's just the lifelong struggle of being a middle child, right? Like, and, and you know that if you have kids, every single one of them can be very, very different. You know, I've got three boys. Each of them is incredibly unique in their own individual ways, and each of them brings their own individual contribution to our family. And, and if you've never read the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you very quickly see is, is that among the gospel accounts, John is really kind of the middle child of the family. He, he's the one like me, like he just looks a little bit different than everybody else is there and yet still brings his own unique contribution. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known to us as the synoptic gospels. These words, that word synoptic just means seen together. And we give them that label because they're all very similar in structure and format. Uh, John's gospel account was probably the last to be written, most likely written in the 90s AD. And it's authored, uh, as we see all throughout the gospel account, by John, who's referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. John's gospel records no parables. There's only seven miracles. And while the other gospel accounts focus primarily on what Jesus did and what Jesus said, John's gospel account places a much heavier emphasis on who Jesus was and why Jesus came. And the book displays from the very beginning Jesus as the perfect son of God, and it focuses heavily on his relationship with his heavenly father. So the key continued emphasis is on the deity of Jesus Christ from start to finish in this book. And the key word that we find all throughout the Gospel of John is the word believe. John gives us his purpose for writing in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. 
John writes, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe. Everybody say believe. That you may believe what? That Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that's John's emphasis all throughout this gospel account. Jesus is the pre-existent son of God and eternal life can be found in his name and his name alone. Now, uh, beyond this, a big part of what sets John's gospel account apart from the others is that it focuses heavily on only one week of Jesus's life. About 60 to 70% of the gospel of John focuses on the last several days of Jesus' earthly ministry. So in John 11 is really the turning point here. There we see Jesus perform one of his most famous miracles, which is raising Lazarus from the dead. And then in John 13, we see Jesus washing his disciples' feet. In chapters 14 through 16, Jesus delivers some of his most famous teachings, where in John 14, he says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, a passage we'll look at briefly this morning. He tells his disciples that after he's gone, the Father will send them the Holy Spirit to be their helper. In John 15, he tells them he's the true vine, that they are the branches, that apart from him, they can do nothing. He challenges them to love one another, to walk in unity with one another. He warns them that they'll be hated by the world. But then all these teachings close at the end of John 16 and verse 33 with one of the most famous promises that Jesus ever gives. He tells his disciples, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. He warns them, in this world, you will have tribulation. Then he comforts them with a promise, take heart. I have overcome the world. So when we arrive at John 17, after all this buildup, Jesus now stands at the threshold of the cross. All throughout the gospel account, Jesus has been predicting his death and the time has now come. It's a very sobering hour because Jesus not only has the weight of the world, he has the weight of sin, he has the weight of eternity now built upon his shoulders. And in this moment of beautiful intimacy, in his moment of greatest need, we see Jesus turn his eyes and he lifts his voice upward to his Father who's in heaven. So for the last several months, our church has studied the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5 through 7. It was and forever will be the greatest sermon that has ever been preached. And all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, we saw Jesus consistently come back to this theme of prayer. Jesus teaches us what to pray. Jesus tells us why to pray. He shows us how to pray. He also shows us how not to pray. And it's, uh, we, we see in Matthew chapter six in the Sermon on the Mount, we're given what's known to us as the Lord's Prayer. That's the label that we've given to it, where Jesus teaches us how to pray. But it's been argued by many that the true Lord's Prayer is not the one that's found in Matthew six. It's been argued that the true Lord's Prayer is the one we find in John 17. Since at least the 16th century, this has been referred to as the high priestly prayer of Jesus because it shows Jesus, as Ron mentioned earlier, it shows Jesus as being the one and only mediator between God and man. He's doing a mediatorial work as our faithful high priest. And all throughout this prayer, we see Jesus pray for himself. We see Jesus pray for his disciples. And finally, and listen, this should absolutely blow our minds. We see Jesus pray specifically for us. So for several months, we studied the greatest sermon ever preached. For the next few weeks, we're gonna look at the greatest prayer that was ever prayed. And in the opening of the high priestly prayer, we see Jesus pray for himself. And what we find in verses one through five, as Jesus prays for himself, he asks the Father to glorify the Son so that he in return will glorify the Father. This is the first request from Jesus in his high priestly prayer, Father, glorify your sons. Let's read it again from John chapter 17, verse one. 
When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, why? That the son may glorify you. So this is his request. Father, glorify your son. Glorify your son. So how does the father glorify the son? We see four ways in the first five verses of John 17. We see first that the father glorifies his son through the son's humility by his death on the cross. The father glorifies the son through his humility by his death on the cross. Verse one tells us when Jesus had spoken these words. Now that's referencing everything that I just recapped in the introduction from chapters 13 through 16. When he finished that whole section of teaching, this is leading up to where Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. When he's finished speaking all those words, we're told that he lifts his eyes to heaven. And again, one of the recurring themes in John's gospel is that he's always detailing for us this intimate relationship that Jesus enjoys with his heavenly father. And this is not the first time in John's gospel account that we have seen Jesus lift his eyes to heaven as he prays. Uh, Another example of this came from John chapter 11, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the grave. They're all gathered together, and, and as Jesus tells them to roll away the stone before he calls Lazarus forth, we're told in John 11, 41, that they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes. And he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And so here again in John 17, we see Jesus lifting his eyes to his father in heaven. And here's what he prays. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. So why does the son ask to be glorified? We're given three reasons in verse one. Jesus asked to be glorified first because his hour had come. He said, Father, glorify your son. The hour has come, glorify your son. Now, John's gospel account continually builds suspense around this appointed hour. What we're seeing this in almost every single chapter that his hour had not come or the hour was to come and he were awaiting an appointed hour. John 2, Jesus, this is his first recorded miracle uh, where he turns water into wine at the wedding at Cana. So the wine is run out. Mary comes to tell him that the wine's run out and his response is, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And then we see in John 7, Jesus is being pressured to perform more public miracles so that he could be more widely known. And the reason he doesn't want to do this in his response is because his hour had not yet come. In John 8, Jesus makes the claim that he's the light of the world. The Pharisees accuse him of false testimony, but they don't arrest him. And the reason they don't arrest him, John records, is because his hour had not yet come. And so there's just this continual asking all throughout the first dozen chapters of John's gospel leading up to John 17, when is the appointed hour? You're reading John's gospel, man. It's like taking a road trip with three kids, right? Like every turn, it's like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And in John 17, as Jesus opens his mouth, he confirms once and for all that the wait is over. They're there. The hour had finally come. And the hour he's been referring to is the hour of his death on the cross. All of history had been building up to this one moment. His hour had finally come. And because of this, we see second from verse one, that his honor was due. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. The hour had come and his honor was due. Glorify your son. Now, I think it's important as we look at the word glory, we look at the word glorify, just in in terms of language, we're talking here about the difference between a noun and a verb. 
God's glory is the display of his goodness. It's the display of his holiness. It's the display of his beauty, and it's the display of his perfection. But to glorify then, that the verb here, it's, it's to then respond by celebrating and to respond by magnifying and bestowing honor. So that's what Jesus is asking for here. Father, celebrate the Son, magnify the Son, honor the Son. And how does the Father glorify the Son? The Father glorifies his Son through his death on the cross. Now that seems contradictory. Jesus asks for exaltation and what he receives is execution. How is it that the Father glorifies the Son through the Son's death on the cross? How in any way, shape, or form does an instrument of torture magnify the Son? Because it doesn't look like an exaltation, it looks like an execution. But what we see through the word of God is that God's glory is most powerfully displayed through the death of his son on the cross. James Hamilton has offered a good reflection here. He's asked the same question, how does the death of Jesus glorify the father? The cross glorifies the father because at the cross, listen, God keeps his word. God shows that if he says that sin will lead to death, it does. Humans are often tempted to bend the rules when they become inconvenient. God, however, shows that he will not bend the rules, change the boundaries, or redefine, <clears throat> excuse me, the terms. God is so committed to his own holiness that he does not spare his son, but freely gives him up for us all. The demonstration of God's holiness is simultaneously a demonstration of his incomparable love for his people. God puts Christ forward as a sacrifice of propitiation because his people's sins must be punished. God glorifies Jesus at the cross. Why? so his people can be saved from the penalty of their sins. This is what's happening at the cross. Through his death on the cross, God is simultaneously upholding both his justice and his love. I hope you understand this this morning, that for God to be truly just, he has to punish sins. If God is not just, then God is not love. So to uphold his justice, God has, to, uh, God has to punish sin. He can't leave sin unpunished. Otherwise, he's an unrighteous judge. He's not a good judge. But God is not just the judge who's punishing sin. God is also the loving father who pays the price for our sin. And so that's what's happening at the cross is God is both upholding his justice and he's upholding his love. And Christ, in full submission to the father's will, embraces this responsibility. And even though his hour had come and his honor was due, that this is incredible to me, we also see in verse one that his humility remained. That this is so important for us to see. He says, Father, glorify your son. You leave that by itself, it feels like a selfish request. Because we shouldn't pray this. You leave that statement by itself, it feels like a selfish request, but why does he ask to be glorified? Father, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And the Father glorified the Son through the cross. This is how the Apostle Paul reflected on this in Philippians 2, 8 through 10. He said of Jesus, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Because Christ humbled himself as a servant to the point of death on a cross, God has exalted him as king. God glorifies his son through his humility by his death on the cross. 
Verse one, the Father's come, glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you. And then verses two and three, Jesus says, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And listen to this. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So the Father glorifies the Son through his humility by his death on the cross. Second, the Father glorifies his Son through his authority to grant eternal life. The Father glorifies the Son by extending this authority to grant eternal life. Uh, last Sunday night, I was teaching our membership class, and, and I was reviewing our uh, belief statements, and I was elaborating on what it means that Scripture is our ultimate authority. And, and anytime I teach this class, most of you have been through the class probably if you're, you're a member of our church, and uh, we talk about this word authority, and I just ask really simply, hey, what comes to your mind when you hear the word authority? And the top two answers that we always get in this class when, when I'm asked what comes to your mind when you think about authority are the words police and parents. That's just what we think about with authority, right? The, the reality is we're not free to live our lives however we want, there's laws that we have to abide by. There's rules that we have to follow. And if, and if somebody breaks those laws or those rules, they, they might be threatened with someone saying, I'm going to call the authorities. And those authorities, they have the authority to show up and hold you accountable, hold you responsible for not upholding the laws and the rules you're supposed to do. You know, for, for better or for worse, and, and much to our dismay when we're growing up, uh, kids, like, well, like we grow up under the authority of our parents, right? Parents, like that, that's the friendly reminder. If they're under your roof, like they're under your authority, and, and, and so, so we look at all this. I was uh, told somebody after the first service, they're like, for the students, you should also mention teachers. I'm just gonna leave that for you this morning. So that's an authority as well. So, so we're, we're supposed to submit to authority. And you know, especially as Westerners, part of what is ingrained into our DNA is like a high skepticism of authority. We don't like too much authority, right? We like fought a whole war to make sure we didn't have a king. But we reject this. We don't like the idea of, a, of an absolute monarchy and someone having absolute authority over my life. And especially when that authority is abused, right? What we so desire for those people to, to rightly be held accountable for abusing our authority, that authority. And so what Jesus says here in verse two can really push against our flesh because what Jesus says is that he has authority over all flesh. He has total authority over us. But the good news about Jesus is that even though he has all authority, he never abuses that authority. He never abuses his authority. What we see of Jesus, what he does with his authority in verse two, a couple of things. What we see first, that the son distributes eternal life in this authority. The father has granted him the authority to give eternal life. The son has been given authority over all flesh to give eternal life, and pay attention to this, to all that the Father has given to him. Jesus has the authority to give eternal life to all who have been given to him by the Father. Now, I wanna expand on this a little bit. We looked at this verse very briefly just a few weeks ago from John 6, verses 37 through 40. This is what Jesus says. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Now, this is good news for us. Everybody who belongs to the Father will come to Jesus Christ. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing. Everybody say nothing. I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone, everybody say everyone, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. All that the Father has given to him will come 
to him. This creates a little bit of tension, but I want to make sure we're clear on this this morning. God is perfectly just in choosing who are his and who he gives to Jesus. He's perfectly just in this. God's sovereign choice in election in no way, shape, or form negates the responsibility of man. So understand, what I'm gonna talk about here, this is not fatalism. God's word is abundantly clear on both fronts for us. Ephesians 1, Romans 8 in particular. It is God who calls. It is God who predestines. It is God who foreknows. It is God who chooses. It is God who elects. It is God who adopts. It's God who appoints eternal life, period. It is God who's responsible for doing these things. And he does not do this on the basis of knowing that we would choose him. Otherwise, we could claim that we've been saved by our works. That's what God does in his sovereignty. He chooses who belongs to him and he gives them to Jesus Christ and he's perfectly just in doing this because scripture is also abundantly clear that we are responsible for seeing him. Romans 1 has shown us that, that God has revealed himself generally to all people through creation so none will stand before him without excuse. None will have an excuse when they stand before him. God has revealed himself generally to all through creation, but God has also revealed himself specifically through his son, Jesus Christ, and by giving us his word. So we are all responsible for seeing this glory and responding to it and believing. That means God is perfectly just in calling on us. We're responsible for calling on him. He is just to save, and he is also just to condemn. And he glorifies the son by giving him the authority to grant eternal life which the Son will grant to all who have been given to him by the Father. Please don't miss this this morning. This is not meant to scare you. We get so hung up on this. How do I know if I've been chosen? How do I know if I've been given from the Father to Jesus? Well, we'll go back to what Jesus said. He said, all that the Father has given to him will come to him. And everyone who looks to the Son and believes will be raised up on the last day. So here's the question this morning. Have you come to the Son? Have you come to the Son? If you have, then congratulations. You have been given to him by the Father. Have you looked on him and believed? You should not live with fear of, man, am I in? Am I? No, no, you, you can have the confidence. If you've come to Jesus Christ, you've looked upon him and believed, you've hung the hopes of your soul and your salvation on his perfect finished work, you can be confident that the Father has given you to him. He never abuses his authority It shouldn't lead us to fear, it should lead us to faith because he uses his authority to grant eternal life. But he not only distributes eternal life, we also see in verse verse three that he defines eternal life. This is what he does in his authority. In his authority, he gives eternal life, he distributes it, and in his authority, he defines what eternal life is. As the ultimate authority, Jesus is the one who gets to make this definition. And this is what he shows us, two components of this statement. He says, this is, is eternal life. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Two components here. We must know God as the only true God, and we must know Jesus Christ whom he has sent. To know Jesus is to know God. To know Jesus is to know God, and we can only know God by knowing Jesus. Jesus himself makes this clear. In John 14, he tells his disciples that he's going to prepare a place for them and that they can know where he's going. And it's it's one of those beautiful interchanges in all of scripture. I love Thomas's response here. He says to Jesus, he says, how will we know the way? And how does Jesus respond in John 14, six? He says, I am the way. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And then he says, no one, everybody say no one. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus pronounces condemnation on entire cities because they would not turn and repent from their, of their sins. And Jesus says in Matthew 11, 27 and 28, all things, everybody say all things. All things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Jesus has not just been given the authority to distribute eternal life. Jesus himself defines eternal life. And I'm stressing this this morning because I think we need to understand, if you've not seen this already, church, we're living in a very pluralistic age. And sadly, many professing Christians are giving into this. And we need to make sure we're abundantly clear on this this morning. Our God is not one God among many. Jesus is not one option that you can choose to get to God. Our God is not one among many. He is the only true God and there is no other. To deny this is to deny him. We can't miss this. Jesus is not one of many paths to the Father. Jesus does not say in John 14 that he is a way. He doesn't say that he is a truth. He doesn't say that he is a possible path to life. Jesus says that he's, that's a definite article, the way. Jesus says he's the truth. Jesus says he's the life. You cannot claim to be a follower of Christ while simultaneously rejecting what Christ claimed about himself. All authority has been given to him, and by giving him this authority, the Father glorifies the Son. Verse four, Jesus goes on to pray to his Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So how does the Father glorify the Son? Third, through his fidelity to the Father and his work. Now, you're starting to see just kind of the back and forth exchange that's going on here. The Father glorifies the Son. The Son glorifies the Father in return. It's just back and forth, back and forth. Father glorifies Son. Son glorifies Father. In verse four, we see that Jesus acknowledged the Father by giving him glory. This is, this is incredible. It is in, in verse four, he says, I glorified you on earth. In everything Jesus said and did, Jesus gave glory to his Father who is in heaven. Of all the incredible things he did, he did all of it from the pure motive of wanting to glorify his heavenly father. So he acknowledges him by giving him glory. You know, we often marvel how Jesus was able to live a perfectly sinless life. Not only were his actions always pure, his desires were pure, his motives were pure. Jesus faced every single temptation that you and I have ever faced, and he faced every one of those temptations without ever once caving into sin. And that's incredible. But I think of all the sinful temptations that Jesus faced that we have also faced from, from sexual temptation to gossip to slander to hatred to whatever it is, what's most amazing to me was how Jesus was able to continually overcome pride. Never one time did he cave into pride. Now I want you just to think about this for a moment. This is the perfect and only begotten son of God who has always existed for all of eternity. In his flesh, he was full humanity, but he was still full deity. He, he embraced the limitations of man, but even in his earthly state, he never ceased to be fully God. If anybody who has ever walked the face of the earth, if anyone who's ever walked the face of the earth had the right to exalt themselves and to lord their authority over someone else, it was Jesus Christ. And yet he doesn't. Time and time again, what do we see Jesus doing? He humbles himself. He empties himself. He lays aside his rights. He lays aside his privileges and he uses his authority not to take life, but to, not, not to take life, but to lay his own life down so that you and I can be saved. 
His very existence brought glory to the Father, and in him the Father was very well pleased. So he acknowledged the Father by giving him glory. We also see in verse four that he accomplished the work that the Father had given. And now, at this point in time, Jesus had not yet been crucified, but he speaks as if it was as good as done because the ink was really already starting to dry on the paper. Jesus had fulfilled his earthly ministry. He had lived a perfectly sinless life, which qualified him to be the substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. At this point in the Passion narrative, Judas has already conspired to betray him, and it's right after this prayer that Jesus goes on to continue in prayer at Gethsemane with his disciples where he would be arrested. And he's been predicting his death throughout his ministry, and now the time has come. And John's gospel is clear that this hour is referring to the hour of his death. If you look at the layout of John, John 12 and John 17 really serve as bookends of each other. This is the first time we see Jesus say that this hour had come. And he's, he's speaking explicitly so clearly about his, his death. This is John 12, 23 through 28. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And how is he gonna be glorified? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat dies into the earth, falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Father, glorify your name. And it says, then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Just the back and forth. The Father glorifies the Son. The Son asks to be glorified so that he can glorify the Father in return. This is the beautiful fellowship and relationship of the Trinity. You have the Father glorifying the Son, and the Son glorifying the Father, and the Spirit glorifying the Son. Is anybody else's head spinning by all that yet? Just like this ping pong match of, of glorify here, glorify there. Uh, my, my first job that I had in high school was, was at a Jersey Mike Subs, and still love Jersey Mike's, by the way, still my, my favorite sub restaurant. So uh, love the job, and, and what I really loved about this job is, in particular is that uh, one of our managers when I was in high school was this college guy named Brooks, and loved working for Brooks because um, he's a really nice guy, he was a hard worker, and he had really high standards for us, like he wanted to make sure he was carrying out his responsibilities well, but the thing I really liked about Brooks is, is you wanted to work hard for him because even when we didn't quite meet the standards, he never threw us under the bus. He always went to bat for us. He's just one of those great managers who do what great managers and great leaders do. Whenever something goes wrong, he takes personal responsibility. And whenever something went well, he deflected the praise to others. And so I remember one time in particular, our owner came to us and, and he was just asking about Brooks and asking about the job he was doing as a manager. And we, we gave him some pretty high praise. And then we found out about a week later that our owner had given Brooks a raise. You know, just went to him and complimented him, said, hey, man, these, these guys love working for you. I really appreciate what you're doing here. Well, then Brooks, what he decides to do, because he gets a raise this week, is when it came time to split up tips at the end of the week, he takes his portion of the tip, which is bigger, and then he wanted to give it back to all of us. And, and so just this constant back and forth. And, you know, anytime something went well, he's, he's like, man, this, this, this goes to you guys. And anytime there was an opportunity for him to take more for himself, he tried to deflect it back to us. And you know, so it's kind of this ping pong match of, of glorifying. Is that, man, you guys are, are good employees. And we're like, well, man, you're, you're a really good manager. And then this is what's going on. And, and so just, th this is kind of the picture that we see within the Trinity. It's just this constant mutual glorifying of each other. Now, I know all of you are wondering, did we say, no, Brooks, you keep that tip for yourself. We did not because we were poor high school students. Um, that, that like $12, $15 made a huge difference. Um, that actually bought a tank of gas, you know, like 20 years ago. And, um, and, and so we, we, illustration would have been better if we'd given it back. We didn't. But, but you see the picture here. 
The Father glorifies the Son, that the Son asks to be glorified just so he can reflect that glory right back to his Father. This is the glimpse of the relationship between Jesus and his Father. The, the, the Son glorifies the Father by being faithful in his work, and the Father glorifies the Son for being faithful in his work. The Son brings glory to the Father, the Father glorifies the Son, and then the Son gives the glory back to the Father. In case you're wondering, this is just a picture here of, of how Jesus, just in his ultimate authority, never lost sight of his humility. He held both of these in perfect tension with one another. Even in his total authority, he never laid aside his humility. And the Father glorified his Son through the Son's faithfulness to the Father. This passage closes out in verse 5. Jesus prays, and now, Father, here's the request again. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So how does the Father glorify the Son? Fourth, we see this morning, through his deity as his glory is displayed. Here comes the request a second time. Glorify me. Pay attention. Glorify me in your own presence that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is here appealing to his own deity. He is appealing to the fact that he has been with the Father since before creation. So how is he glorified? We see in verse five, he's glorified in the Father's presence. Glorify me in your own presence. And this echoes you know, the request that Moses makes. If you go back to Exodus chapter 23, it's similar to the request that Moses makes where he asks the Lord, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And shortly after that, we see that, that Moses is hidden in the rock and the glory of God, the presence of God passes him by. Except here in John 17, Jesus doesn't ask for the glory to be shown to him. Jesus asks for the glory to shine upon him. And he's the only one that can make this request because he is the only one who is the son of the father. Don't miss this this morning. Jesus can ask for the presence of God because Jesus himself is the presence of God. And he has always been in the presence of God. He's glorified in the Father's presence. And second, he is glorified through his own preeminence. He, he appeals to his own preeminence. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You know, a few months back, I shared um, some pretty concerning findings. This is Ligonier Ministries. They have what's known as their State of Theology Survey, where they study the beliefs of professing Christians and uh, just different attitudes that we have about Jesus and about the Bible and our responsibilities as followers of Christ. And I shared this one particular stat a few months ago, but this is the one from that study that, that grabbed my attention and concerned me the most. Among professing followers of Christ, from this conducted survey, among professing followers of Christ. So don't miss this. It's people who claim to be followers of Jesus. 43% said they believe that Jesus is a good moral teacher, but they disagreed with the claim that Jesus is God. I'm going to let that sit here for a second this morning. More than four out of 10 professing Christians would say they disagree with the claim that Jesus is God. Let me fix that headline for us this morning, and it's not good news. The headline is not 43% of professing Christians disagree that Jesus is God. The true headline is 43% of professing Christians are not actual Christians. Because you cannot claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ while simultaneously rejecting what the Bible tells us about Jesus and what Jesus has claimed for himself. We can't do these things. But we can't just, just set this aside and say, hey, that, that's, just, that's a piece of Jesus I don't think that I'm gonna pick up. And I just wonder, like, do you know this version of Jesus? 
Do you know the, the pre-existent Jesus or do you, do you only know like the, the Jesus in Birkenstocks having lunch with his friends? Like, do you know the before, the glory before the world existed Jesus? Have you met that Jesus yet? We don't have the option of just laying this aside. John's gospel announces this from the very, very beginning. From the very first words of John's gospel, he makes it abundantly clear who Jesus was and who Jesus is. John 1.1, 1, 1, he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And he goes on to say, John 1.14, the word became flesh and he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. And what John is saying in the opening words of this gospel account is Jesus is the capital W word. Jesus is the logos. This was a Greek philosophical term that referred to divine self-expression. What the logos referenced was, was the embodiment of knowledge, the embodiment of wisdom, the, the embodiment of, of understanding, all of this coming into fruition in, in one. And what John is announcing in the very first verse of his gospel is that in Jesus Christ, the logos has been revealed. John is saying from the opening words, this means that Jesus is the divine self-expression of God. John's saying Jesus is the incarnate word of God. He's saying that Jesus is the embodiment of the wisdom of God. And Jesus is the realization of the reason of God. And Jesus is the revelation of the knowledge of God. And Jesus is the fullness of the glory of God. He himself is the logos. He is the word. This is the one that John says. We don't have the option of just laying this aside and saying, I don't think that's who he is. Jesus is fully God and fully man. He's full deity, he's full humanity. He's alpha, he's omega, he's first, he's last, he's beginning, he's in. He is not just a good inspirational speaker who said some nice things. Now, I can't help but go back to the words of C.S. Lewis on this very subject. He's written so well on this. He wrote, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You, can, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. You cannot say you accept Jesus as a good moral teacher while you simultaneously reject what Jesus taught and prayed about himself. He is the fullness of the eternal glory of God. That glory has been revealed to man. So, so church, the only question that remains for us today is whether or not you have seen the glory of Jesus Christ. Have you seen him in his glory? So I just wanna give us two challenges very briefly here as we wrap up our time together this morning. Two responses that we can draw from this text today. Here's the first challenge. First challenge is to see the Son of God in the fullness of his glory. See the Son of God in the fullness of his glory. It was uh, C.S. Lewis who also said, I uh, love these words, he, he said, a man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can blot out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. You can't extinguish the glory of God. You can't extinguish the glory of God. And the question is not, have you seen the glory of God? The question is, what have you done with what you've seen? 
Jesus said the glory has been revealed. The word has become flesh. It has dwelt among us. God has revealed his glory to us. The only question is, how have you responded to the glory that you've seen? Have you seen the fullness of God's glory revealed in Jesus Christ? And I think the boldest prayer you could go home and pray today is this. Father, show me the glory of your son so that I can bring greater glory to you. Friend, who are you, whose glory are you looking for today? Whose glory are you living for? If Christ prayed for his own glory only so he could bring glory to the Father, then what we should be praying above all else is for Christ to be glorified in us so that we also can give glory to our Father in heaven. To see the Son of God in the fullness of his glory, the second challenge this morning is to know the true God and his Son, Jesus, whom he has sent. John 3.16 might be the most famous passage of Scripture in the whole Bible. I think it's the most Googled passage of scripture last time I checked, John 3, 16. You know, what's not as widely known is what Jesus goes on to say in the next few verses. And that's sad because these words are equally as important and actually give more life to verse 16 and help us more fully understand what, what is getting across there. In John three sixteen, Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Then he goes on in 17 to 20 to say, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. He says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. The glory of God has been revealed in Jesus Christ. The, the, the question for us is, what have you done with the glory that you've seen? Have you loved the appearing of the light or do you love your darkness? Have you resisted the light? Have you resisted the glory instead to retreat to your sin. The glory of God has been made known to us through sending his son, Jesus Christ, through the proclamation of his word and through his son's humility and through his son's authority, through his fidelity, through his deity, God has glorified his son, Jesus Christ, and his son, Jesus Christ, has glorified him in return. The only question for us today is, have we? Have we given glory to the son? Have we placed glory exactly where it's due? Listen, I wanna, I wanna just land on a really, really simple place this morning. This has been a lot this morning. We've looked at a lot of scripture and, and this can, can kind of do scrambled eggs on our brains a little bit. You need to take these things and continue digesting them all week long. But let me just leave you with something very, very simple today. Two truths that we have to absolutely have to understand. You were made for the glory of God and you were made to give glory to God. And until you understand this, your life will never make sense. It'll never make sense. Have you seen the glory of God revealed to us through his son, Jesus Christ? Do you know him as the only true God? Do you know his son, Jesus, whom he has sent? And above all else, we wanna bring him glory and honor and praise today. We bow your heads with me as we close. So Father, we thank you that your glory has been revealed to us in your son, Jesus we thank you that you glorified your son through his death on the cross so that we could look upon him and believe. We could turn from our sins. We could call on his name in faith and be saved. Father, we praise you for this. So as we come to the table this morning, Lord, will you bring us to the place of examination and of confession? 
of recognizing where we have lived for our glory and not for your glory, will you put us back in step with your will and with your word? Father, don't let us be guilty of adjusting your word to our desires. Lord, today we want to submit our desires to your word, to what you have said is good and right and true. Thank you that your son, Jesus Christ, became flesh. Thank you for revealing your glory to us, for displaying it in his death and his resurrection. We thank you that he's coming again. We set our eyes toward that day and we ask that we would live only for his glory. So if you just keep your heads bowed with me for a moment, we're gonna prepare our hearts and minds uh, to come to the table for communion. I think the danger we, we always face is that we just do this out of empty rhythm and routine. We just do this just to do it. And God's word warns us against this and, and cautions us against this mentality. We should never do this just to check the box. We come to the table to remember the death of Jesus Christ, to proclaim his death until he returns. And in doing this, we should never forget the gravity of what it costs God to save us. So as we prepare to come to the table, let's, let's do the work of confession. Let's ask the Lord to reveal our sins to us, to, to show us where we're out of step with him and out of step with his word. But let's humbly come before the Lord in confession of our sin. And listen, in confession, we're just telling God what he already knows. There's nothing we can hide from him. There's nothing he doesn't know about us. As we do this, we ask him to grant us a heart of true and genuine repentance. Repentance isn't just feeling sorry for our sin. It's not just having remorse over our sin. And in repentance, we desire to leave behind our sin, to cease our sin, to quit our sin by his grace, by the help of his spirit, and to receive the perfect righteousness by faith that's made available to us in his son, Jesus. And even as we repent, let's rejoice. Let's thank God that he sent his son, Jesus Christ. Let's thank God that his love and his justice were both upheld. Let's rejoice that he has called us out of death and into life. As we wait for the day of his returning, we set our eyes on him and we live for his glory. So Father, be glorified in our response this morning. Be glorified in the worship of your people. As we confess, as we repent, as we sing, as we pray, Lord, let it all be a sweet fragrance and aroma, our sacrifice of praise to you today. Help us to bring glory to your son, Jesus Christ, that we can bring glory and honor to you. We ask all these things this morning in his name and for his glory. And everyone said, amen, amen.